Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. Today's scripture reading is from Paul's first letter to Timothy, beginning the fifth verse. I'm going to start reading at verse 5 of chapter 1. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Zach, thank you. Where'd you go? There he is. Thank you, man. Unbelievable. We just appreciate you coming here. My name is, uh, is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at New King, and um, two of them are away on holiday. Uh, ben, our lead pastor, is off in Maine somewhere, laying on the beach. Uh, Lucius, our worship leader, I think is down in the southern states somewhere. He said he was going south. I figured that's probably Rutland or somewhere like that, maybe, but... Uh, actually, I think it's Alabama, maybe. Uh, so if you haven't met me, if I haven't met you, or if you're a visitor here, uh, please say hello before you leave today. Uh, so um, today the topic is teachers in the household of God. Good teachers and bad teachers. And I am going to try something very different today something that's actually very frightening, but I'm going to give it a shot. So you may have seen uh, this little number up here. So during the sermon, if you have a question about what I'm saying, text it to that number. Or if you're old school, Write it on one of the cards in front of you. Stick it in the silver uh, bowl. At the end of the service today, believe it or not, I am going to come up here, I'm going to sit on that bass speaker, and I am going to read those questions and try to answer. There's only three rules. Number one, you have to write the question. I want you to think about it. I want you to write it down. And you have to make it somewhat succinct. So you've got to write it. Number two, it has to be about the, the portion that I'm preaching on. If you want to ask about the four creatures in Revelation, that's probably not the t- this probably isn't the time to do that. We can talk about that some other time. 
Um, third, third and last and final rule, I reserve the right to say, oh man, I don't know. Next week, come next week, let me do a little research. So write it down, it has to be relevant, and give me an out, please. All right, you good with that? Yes, sir. I do? Oh, oh wait, four five. Four five, four five. This is the right one. I don't know who that other person is. Maybe you can use that as an as a evangelistic tool. So thank you, Caleb, for pointing that out. All right. Yeah, maybe it's Ben. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and who would do this without Ben and Lucius here? Only a fool. That's me. Okay, so this sermon today is going to be in three parts. I've got to get moving, otherwise we'll be here at 2 o'clock. Three parts. We're going to go through the text. I am going to tell you about the text, what it means in context with Paul's letter to Timothy. So exposition number one. Number two, I am going to tell you several ways from that text on how to recognize a good teacher. How to recognize. So very practical. We live in a day, there's a lot of voices. How do you recognize a good Bible teacher? And then lastly, our sermon series in 1 Timothy is about being countercultural. I'm going to, if we have time, I'm going to give you a couple reasons why this is immensely and profoundly countercultural to the world that we live in. So that's the hope, okay? Let's just say a quick prayer that the Lord would help me and that the Lord would help you as we go into this. Father God, we thank you for the worship this morning. We thank you for your son Jesus. We ask that you would help each of us in this room to understand your word, to help us understand the person of Jesus better. Father, help me. Give me the words to say. Give me strength. Give me a clear mind to teach your word according to how it's written. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What is 1 Timothy all about? We're going to try to do this every week. I don't want anybody going away from here not understanding through the course of these sermons what 1 Timothy is about. So, if you look over in chapter 3, I'm going to talk about this very briefly, of 1 Timothy. In verse 14, uh, Paul says to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Timothy is writing to the church to say, this is how you act. This is how you behave. Where? In the church, the household of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. The word ought to behave in the Greek means this. It's how we translate our knowledge to our conduct. How we behave is based upon what we know. What we know determines how we act. In the household of God, the Christian church, 
Our behavior is governed by the Word of God and how well we know it. The truth. What truth? Exactly what truth do we base it on? Well, Paul in the next verse goes on and tells us exactly what truth. He says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Who's that about? Jesus. So first off, just just a couple quick things and we have to move on. The word mystery in the New Testament means something that was hidden and is now clear and made manifest. It's not mysterious in the way that you and I might think. It's something that was not known before, but is now known. So Paul says, great is the mystery of godliness. What does godliness mean? You and I immediately add another O to it. We say it's goodliness. It's how we act. No. If you do that, you're going to get it wrong. Godliness means our devotion to the one true God. That's what it means. When you're godly, you're devoted to him. And when you're devoted to him, and who's the him? Jesus, the person and work of Jesus. When you're devoted to him, guess what? It will affect your conduct. You see, you have to have it in the right order. It's not goodliness. That comes later. It's godliness. You devote yourself. How well you know the gospel and have it incorporated into your soul will determine how you act. The gospel comes first. The conduct comes as a result of the gospel. You with that? You with me on that? Is that good? Okay. Now, so that's what the letter is all about. And so Paul writes to Timothy. He says, okay, in the household of God, there's going to be teachers, some good and some bad. Here's how to deal with them. He's going to talk about about gender roles. He's going to talk about worship. He's going to talk about ageism, old people and young people. How do you relate? He's going to talk about a, a number of other things. What do you do with widows? What about young widows? What about old widows? Money. How do you deal with money? What if there's somebody that's rich among you? He deals with all these things. Are you with me? Okay. Teachers. Exposition. We have to start. Now, Ben went over some of this before, but we've got to go back. Verse 3 of chapter 1. He says, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain people persons not to teach any different doctrine. So, so Paul says to Timothy, one pastor writing to another, look, as I told you before, I'm just going to really hammer away on it. You've got to stay. You've got to stay in this place. There's certain people that are not good teachers. Why? They're teaching a different doctrine. Something that doesn't line up with the acceptable understanding of the person of God. Doctrine, we get all nerved up about that word. All it means is your understanding of God based upon the scriptures. How do you understand who God is and what he's done? How do you understand yourself? Anthropology. How do you understand the church? Ecclesiology. How do you understand the future? Eschatology. All lots of big words all boil down to doctrine. How we understand God. So, there's certain people that are going away from that, Paul says. Verse 5. 
Oh, verse 4, different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myth and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The result of the bad teaching ends up in something called speculation. Speculation tends to go beyond what Scripture says. He talks about myths and endless genealogies. Good, teacher, good teaching is based upon our understanding of what Scripture says and not going beyond it, not resulting in speculations, which there is no answer for. It's just never-ending questions. Good teaching answers questions. Bad teaching creates more questions that can never be answered. Now, do I have all the answers? No. Just know that for the end. We'll know that. I don't have all the answers. So, verse 5. The aim of Paul's teaching is twofold. There's a charge there. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. A good teacher, first off, must teach out of a proper heart position. It has to be out of love and care for the congregation. We have two people on the pastor track at New King, Camden and Luke. Why? They have a heart. They have shown us that they have a heart for God's people, that they love them and care for them, that they have a shepherd's heart. The teaching has to come from a shepherd's heart, a heart of love and care and concern for the flock. Paul says, that's why, that's the aim here. He says, um, the aim is of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. It also gets into how teachers conduct themselves. Holy smokes, i got to practice what I preach. It's got to be consistent. Secondly, we correct bad teachers, not because we hate them, not because we don't want to get rid of them, but because we want the best for them. We want to love them and show our love for them. So the aim is love, verse 6. The teachers have gone off course. Teachers have gone off course. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. The other day I was at my home and I was working on something out in the yard, probably an old car or something, and all of a sudden I hear this screech of brakes, squealing of tires, and I turn my head to see a bicycle airborne coming towards me. It hit the ground, bounced a couple of times, and landed at my feet. A guy in a truck was driving by my house, swerved off the road, hit a signpost, broke his mirror off, hit the brakes, a bicycle, which was in his trunk, thankfully nobody was riding it, landed at my feet. And it's like, okay. He comes back and he said, yeah, I was on my phone. He had taken his attention away from what was before him to the point that it was almost disastrous. If you look at the last verse of this very chapter, you'll see where Paul mentions two people who have made shipwreck of their faith because why? Because of bad teaching. The teachers have gone 
off course. And there's a term used here, they have wandered away into vain discussions. Now that word vain means two things. First off, it means useless. It means useless, of no value. They've wandered off into teachings that have no value. But secondly, it was all about them. Yeah? It was all about them. It was all about them. They loved to have the adoration. They loved to be the ones preaching. They loved to be in charge. They loved everything about that. They were vain. So that's a characteristic of a bad teacher. It's useless, and it tends to be about them. Our teaching here at New King, I pray that it continues to be all about Jesus. Yeah? Okay. Teachers have gone off course. Now, verse 7, we learn what's going on. We learn a little bit about what's happening there. Verse 7 says, Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Teachers of the law. Confident but wrong. The key phrase that gives us a clue as to what the problem was in Ephesus is they wanted to be teachers of the law. There were people in this church, in the household of God, that wanted to be teachers of the law. And they were doing it, as Paul describes, in a way that they didn't understand what they were teaching, nor did they really know the effect it was, it was having. They had confident assertions. Confident to the point of being arrogant. I'm the teacher. You listen to me. My way or the highway. There's no room for discussion. If you don't like it, there's the door. Teachers of the law. They couldn't be questioned. You couldn't have a discussion. You couldn't talk about it. To say it another way, these teachers in Paul's day were using the Bible, in particular the Old Testament, as the basis for their teaching, but they were doing it in a wrong manner. They didn't understand it, and they didn't apply it correctly. So the next thing we have to ask is what does it mean in this context to be a teacher of the law and to do it wrongly? What was going on there? Verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So the problem wasn't the law. The problem wasn't the Old Testament. The problem wasn't the Bible. It was the teachers doing it wrongly. Some people have been under a domineering, arrogant teacher that can't be questioned, and they end up 
losing their faith. They end up rejecting the scriptures because it was done wrongly. The problem here is not the law. The law is good, Paul says. It's not the Bible. It's the teachers. So the law is good if one uses it lawfully. What does that mean? Paul goes on to say, understanding this, that the law is for, laid down for, not for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, the ungodly, the sinners, and all that. What Paul is doing here, he is not giving us a comprehensive overview of all the uses of the law. He is saying, here's one way to do it correctly. And this idea of using the law lawfully, notice it uses the same term. It's like if I have a hammer and I use it to uh, type in on my keyboard. (laughs) I'm not hammering in the way that the hammer is designed. It's using the same word. You have to use the law for what it's intended. And Paul says they were doing it in a manner that's incorrect. They were not using it lawfully. So he doesn't give a descript, uh, comprehensive description, but what he does do is this. In the next couple of verses that go down through here, he starts listing out a series of moral attributes based loosely on the Ten Commandments. If you were to go back and open up Exodus 20 and look at the Ten Commandments, you could kind of get them to line up here. I'm not going to take time to do that. If you want to do that, go ahead. You can see he's kind of taken the Ten Commandments and says the law is for them. Right? So that's what he does. He looks at it from a moral framework. And the moral framework clearly describes right and wrong. And when you apply that to the unjust, when you use the law lawfully in this situation, you're applying it to people that are sinners. The unjust, the lawless and disobedient, the unholy and profane. And the law has a purpose in that case. What does it do? It shows them their condition before God. It shows them that they are lost. It shows them that they don't measure up. It shows them what what right and wrong are. And it leads them to the gospel. Once you understand your condition before God, that you're a sinner, then you realize, well, maybe I need a Savior. And it leads you to the gospel. So notice very carefully, verse 8, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. At that point, insert a parenthesis. Paul talks about the moral law, uses the Old Testament. Really connect verse 8 with verse 11. Read it this way. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully in accordance with the gospel. The law is good. The problem isn't the law. It has to be used lawfully. How do you use it lawfully? In accordance with the gospel. The gospel and the law are not at odds. One leads to the other. If you use the law properly in this case, for the unjust, you identify their condition, and you point to the Savior, the gospel. Amen, Amen, right? That's one use of the law. 
The law exposes the condition of the unjust and leads them to the gospel. You want to read about that? Read Romans chapter 3. It's all about that. So what were the false teachers doing exactly? We don't know exactly. But we think they were confidently teaching and arrogantly laying down rules and regulations to live your life by. It's all about the rules. It's all about a list. It's all about checking off the list. It's all about me telling you as a Christian exactly how to live your life in a way that's arrogant, that's harsh, that's impatient. And in the end, it's all about me comparing myself to you. We call that legalism, don't we? We call that legalism. And if you've been in a church that's legalistic, you find, you get up in the morning and you say, oh yeah, what am I going to wear? Oh, I better make sure I'm dressed appropriately. Because if I'm not, I'm going to get spoken to. Uh, I can't have my shirt untucked. I've got to have a tie. I've got to have my hair the right length. I can't, I can't have a tattoo. All of a sudden, there's a focus on the external without the internal heart. And that's what this whole passage is trying to get at. You've got to teach out of love, a pure heart, a cleansed conscience. All those things. It has to be from the heart. And what we care about is your heart. I don't care how you're dressed. Okay, 1 Timothy 2 talks about how women are to address themselves. There's a little bit about that here. But, but listen, we care about your relationship to the Savior Jesus. And if you get that right, all the other stuff will fall in place. It's as simple as that. It's not about the rules. It's about Jesus, right? So they weren't doing that. That's what's going on there. <clears throat> And boy, if you read, remember we just got done Matthew. Two, if you're a visitor here, we just finished Matthew's gospel. Two years starting on Matthew. And boy, did Jesus have harsh words for the legalists. Chapter 23 of Matthew, we won't turn to it. It's all about the woes for these false legalistic teachers. Jesus, woe to you teachers who teach like this. Woe. Seven times. Very harsh. So, in concert with that, in keeping with that, Matthew, or Paul tells Timothy, you can't do that here. This is not the way to teach. It must be stopped. Use of the law in this way is not in accordance with the gospel. Now, you might respond to me, and maybe you're writing down this question, but Eric, isn't... Isn't this whole letter about how we're to conduct ourselves? You're, you're talking out of both sides of your mouth. Isn't this letter about our behavior and how we act? Yeah, it is. Of course it is. But based upon our relationship with Jesus, the classic example to understand this, think about when two people are beginning to date. And they're starting to get to know each other, and they're starting to have affection for each other. They're starting to love each other. And I know when I was dating my wife, I wanted to learn about her to see what she liked and what she didn't like. The things that she liked, I wanted to do. The things that she didn't like, I probably didn't want to do. Otherwise, a relationship. One time she was uh, in a dorm room. I saw her go into her dorm room, and uh, then she went out to go to the bathroom. I hid under the bed. And when she came back in, I grabbed her by the ankles. 
never, never, never. Doesn't like that. She didn't like that. I don't know why. I thought it was kind of funny. It's the same. What's that? And I did survive. And we're still married. Listen, it's about our relationship with Jesus. When we fall in love with Jesus, we automatically and naturally from the inside want to do the things that please him. And we don't want to do the things that don't please him. That's why we live under the new covenant, right? Because we now have the law within our hearts. And we live by the Spirit. And the Spirit brings out our affections for Jesus. And that affects our life. That's all it is. And of course, in the household of God, there's rules. And that's what the... Do you think that, that the church and, and the new covenant doesn't have anything to say? The gospel doesn't have anything to say about how we live? Of course it does. But the relationship comes first out of love and affection for Jesus. And anything other than that, flipping that around in any way, is using the law unlawfully. It's not using it for its purpose. Okay? Let's see. Where am I? Okay. One more thing to say before we get into the end. Paul, or two more things. Paul says at the end of verse 10... And whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. That, you, that word sound doctrine is used two times in 1 Timothy, like three times in 2, like three times in Titus. It's a, it's a term. The word sound is a medical term. It means healthy. Like you, you knock on a piece of wood to see if it's sound. Is it rotten or is it sound? So it's a medical term for healthy. Is the doctrine healthy? It's kind of a catch-all. Anything else that accords with healthy doctrine, healthy doctrine results in healthy Christian lives. That's why Paul uses that term. And then, of course, verse 10, uh, verse 11, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. <laughs> All we teach must be gospel-focused, gospel-centered. It must be done in accordance with the gospel. And so we live a life in the household of God that has house rules. It has accepted conduct, but the focus and motivation for that conduct is based upon our relationship with our Savior, with Jesus. So that's what this is teaching. Now, part two. How do we recognize good teachers today? How do we do that? I just said one of them. First and foremost, verse 11, good teachers Teach in accordance with the gospel of the glory of God. This is a gospel in which we were God's enemies. We were fallen short. We are sinners. And God said, I will send my son to die for you. Out of mercy and grace and love, we now have relationship with God through the work of Jesus on the cross. Praise God. Praise God. That 
has to be part of every bit of our teaching here at New King, and that's the main way you can recognize a good teacher. And it uses the word glory. Who gets the glory? It's Jesus. It's God. It's not vanity. It's not me getting the glory. It's pointing everyone, not to myself, but to the one who loved me and gave himself for me. Number one mark of a good teacher. They teach according to the gospel. Two, two good teachers teach the Bible in accordance with the intent and purpose of how it's written. Verse 8, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. It's given as law, use it for that purpose. I have a phone, it's not a hammer. I don't use my phone to hammer nails, usually. That's not its purpose. It's not going to do a very good job at it. It's probably going to break it. We use it for its intents and its purposes. What does that mean? Here at New King, we teach using the historical grammatical method. Everybody goes to sleep. What does that mean? Historical grammatical method. First, we look at the historical context for when it was written. When was it written? Who was it written to? Under what circumstances? We look back at the history of when the Scripture was written, and we look at the context of what was going on then. Just like I'm telling you, okay, Paul writes a letter to Timothy. Well, what was going on? Why did he do it? What was his purpose? What was his aim? If we don't know that, we don't know anything. So we look at it in the historical context that it was written. And then we look at the grammar that was used, using the words that determine the author's intent. <laughs> Teaching the Bible is not like going to a movie. You go to a movie, you all walk out at the end, you say, what do you think of that? Or, How did you, what, what did you make of that? And, and, and what did you take away from that? Yeah, yeah, we do a little bit of that. But if I'm a good teacher, you walk away and say, I know what that guy said. We have clarity. It's not for you to make up your own interpretation. It's for you to hear what the scriptures say using the grammar that it's written in. The normal way of understanding a sentence. We read the text for its plain meaning. We recognize figures of speech. We recognize metaphors. When Jesus says, I'm a door, none of us say, well, gee, oh, he's a door. I wonder if it's a six-foot door or a seven-foot door. I wonder if he's made of oak or maybe steel. No! We know that Jesus is talking and using a metaphor here. Come on! Use that. We also look at the genre of Scripture. We just got done Matthew. Matthew is a historical narrative. It's conveying things that happened in the past. 1 Timothy is a letter from one pastor to another. It has a different genre. It starts off with a greeting. It starts off with who the author is. It ends with a benediction. It has a prayer. All these things were part of a letter back in those days. We recognize that. You read the Psalms. They're songs meant to be sung. They give the whole range of emotion. Are you angry with God? There's a psalm for you. Are you disappointed with God? There's a psalm for you. Are you overjoyed? in the creation that God has. There's a psalm for you. Are you reading the Bible and like it? There's a psalm for you. That's what the psalms are all about. We recognize the genre of the literature, and we teach it. We teach it accordingly. That's a good teacher. 
we recognize that we live under the new covenant, but we're influenced by the old covenant. We recognize that they're both part of God's word, but they both have their place and their purpose, and we teach accordingly. We are not under the old covenant. This is not a sanctuary. This is not an altar. I am not a priest. We recognize the old covenant from the new. Okay, I've got to move on. Good teachers teach out of love and good conduct. The aim, verse 5, of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The aim has to be love. The intent is for the good of the hearers to build them up in their most holy faith, to come alongside them, and to help them. Some of these guys on the internet, you don't know who they are. You don't know what their life is like. You don't know whether they have a good relationship with their wife or their family or their church. Be careful. Good conduct goes with good teaching. The two have to go together. And then, we're not perfect. Holy smokes, we're not perfect. We, we don't want to teach with arrogance. We don't want to teach in a dominating way. That's bad teaching. We want to teach with clarity. We want to be clear about what the Scriptures say, but we're also growing along with you. We're learning where we have humility. Oh, man, I look back at some of my old sermons. I could just cry. I wake up in a cold sweat at night just, oh, I said that. Oh, my word. I'm sure it's still going on. All right. Good teachers teach healthy doctrine. Remember that? Verse 10, healthy, sound doctrine. Sound means healthy. It has to do with the effect of the teaching. Does it result in spiritual health, drawing closer to Jesus? Does it cause us to love him more? Does it cause us to fall on our face and worship? Do we leave the teaching and say, oh my God, what have you done? I can't believe you. I can't believe what the scriptures say. I, I worship you. Or, Do we go away with more questions, speculations, vain discussion? What is the effect? Is it healthy or is it unhealthy? Good teachers teach with healthy confidence. That's verse 7. Confident assertions. I think I already talked about that. We display confidence in clarity, but we're not domineering. The other thing that we do is we teach the whole counsel of God. We don't leave things out. We don't teach little pet verses every week. Why did we go through Matthew, chapters 1 through 28? Because it was written as a whole. We want to teach it as a whole. And hard things come up, and we can't avoid them because they're there. Why are we going through all of 1 Timothy? Hard things come up, and they're there. Very difficult. We teach all of it. We don't want to shy away from anything. And we want it to be discussed. We want it to be clarified. We want it to be be proven from the Scriptures, an environment that's safe, healthy, and supportive. Okay. Luke, you didn't start my timer, so I can just go on for hours, right? Last part. How is this countercultural? Here we are. 2022? What year is it? 2022? Greater Burlington area. 
How does this go against the culture that you and I are immersed in? Let me give it just two ways. <clears throat> Number one, the church, the household of God, bases its teaching, its morality, on something outside of us, from an external source, not an internal source. What do I mean by that? Western culture today, the world that we live in, teaches that we determine right and wrong from inside, from our truth, our understanding of right and wrong. It comes from within. We determine it. What's the basis of moral judgment? It comes from within. We call that a moral conviction. Well, I feel, right? I feel that something is wrong. And you say, okay, I feel that, and, 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 and that's good. Not a bad thing. But then a moral conviction, in order to live in society, turns into something else. It becomes a moral obligation. And what does that mean? It means, well, I feel X, and I don't feel Y, therefore you should feel X. We make it an obligation so that we can live together in society. We take our moral conviction, which is internal, we turn and we make it external for everybody else. An example. So uh, people in Africa are starving. There's a country in Africa, I, I could pick 100 of them, or 10 of them probably, they're starving. My conviction is we should feed them. We should take our, our money, and we should somehow figure a way to feed the poor. Your moral conviction says, hey, I don't have any obligation to them. In fact, the world is overcrowded. It's becoming overpopulated. And if some of those people die off, well, it's better. Well, who wins? How do you arrive at a middle ground? My moral conviction is just as valid as somebody else's moral conviction, isn't it? Because we're all, we all have an equality. So whose moral conviction wins? We go and have a discussion, and I say, well, you better believe this. And you say, no, I don't. I don't have that same moral conviction as you. Well, what basis do we use to adjudicate the difference? We have no basis. It's only feelings. <laughs> right? That's why we're all at a point of yelling. Our society is just yelling and screaming at each other. Because we have no common ground. We have nothing external from ourselves to bring us to a conclusion. Yeah? So it's problems with moral convictions. There's problems with moral obligations. Christianity teaches a different way. There's a sacred, transcendent order outside of ourselves that defines morality. Something that we can look at objectively and not subjectively. Something that we can go to and discuss and talk about, argue about even. But it's something outside of us. And we call that the scriptures, the Bible. So that's one way that we're countercultural. Okay? Second. So this whole passage is about refusing 
certain teachers that teach a wrong doctrine? How is that handled in the world today? One way is cancel culture. People are canceled based on an ever-changing list of what's acceptable and what isn't. Canceling can be done for the most minor missteps, for the wrong word, the wrong phrase. Canceling is done immediately with little or no dialogue or explanation, no patience. It's harsh and unfeeling. Canceling can be done based upon violations made in the distant past, something that you did in middle school maybe that comes to light. We've seen that. And there's no room for growth. There's no room for grace. It doesn't matter how much you apologize, you're done. They will not accept your apology. It doesn't matter. There's no grace. Canceling results in punishment by the many as people pile on. And it can be done to the extreme such that people's lives are ruined. Their families and friends are threatened. It's a terrible thing. And we all kind of shake in our boots about what we say in public. But the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth, we challenge. Yeah? We correct. And if need be, a teacher can be removed and said, you can't teach anymore. But we have a different aim, as Paul says in verse 5. Our aim is love. We do it gently. We do it with patience and grace. We accept apologies. We see that people change and they repent. We know that mistakes can be made. And we forgive them. And the aim is not to get rid of them and punish them, but to love them enough to correct them and restore them. It's all about restoration. Our motive is love, their ultimate good and their restoration. And guess what? Of all things, this is consistent and in accordance with the gospel of God's glory. How about that? It fits. And what is the gospel? Next week, I'm going to be looking at the next passage. And Paul gives his testimony. He talks about how uh, he, in verse 13, he says, I was formerly a blasphemer. I was formerly a persecutor. I was formerly a violent opponent. But I received mercy and grace and love. In a couple of weeks, Camden's going to look at chapter 2 at the beginning where it says what God's purpose is. 
This is good, verse 3, 2, 3. It is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come onto the knowledge of the truth. There is one God, and there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Come to Jesus. Cast your burdens on him. Believe in him, trust in him, love him, and have your life transformed by that relationship. That's what Christianity is all about. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this portion. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the love that you have generated in our hearts for the Savior Jesus, your Son, who gave himself for us. Father, help us to have good conduct in the household of God based upon that relationship, not about cold rules and regulations. Help us to recognize good teachers and go away from those that are not. Oh, Father, we love your Son, Jesus. Draw our hearts out now in response, in worship to our Savior, Jesus. Amen.